influence in this region is deeper and wider than that of any other writer. We have known you for a long time, and from the first contact with your ideas, their appeal grew deeper until our publishing houses were working daily to translate and print your work. You are the only Western writer that all Arab newspapers follow closely. listening to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, David Goodhertz, and my guest today is Yoav Di Capua, author of No Exit, Arab Existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Decolonization. The words you heard him read up at the top came from an Egyptian journalist writing to Sartre in March of 1967, during the French philosopher's highly publicized and highly politicized visit to Egypt. This visit frames Di Capua's work, but No Exit is about much more than Sartre's influence in the Arab world. It is a groundbreaking work of global intellectual history that recovers the voices of poets, philosophers, and political thinkers from around the Arab world who delved into what De Capua calls the most elusive aspect of decolonization, the question of being in the wake of empire. A small note before we begin, I spoke with Professor De Capua before the march of return at the Gaza border brought Palestinian refugees back onto the front page of American newspapers. These events are yet another reminder, if any is needed, of why books like this are so important. Books that go beyond the headlines and deepen our understanding of a culture, a history, and an existential condition that are often discussed in the most crude and reductive terms. So um, to start things off, I thought I'd just give a, a very brief summary of the book so listeners can get a sense of what we're talking about. And then after that, we can sort of dive into more detail about how you wrote it, why you wrote it, um, some major themes of the work, and maybe ultimately, you know, where you see yourself going next. So as, this, as the title suggests, No Exit, Arab Existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre and Decolonization, recovers the history of a little-known and really fascinating uh, existentialist culture that spread across the Middle East after World War II. It's a truly global intellectual history that takes us from Paris to Cairo, Jerusalem, New York, Bethlehem, Beirut. And along the way, we meet a whole galaxy of artists, literary critics, political theorists, and philosophers who used existentialism or um, reinvented existentialism, really, to redefine their culture, decolonize their minds, or in some cases, just to defend their right to misbehave. Uh, if that wasn't enough, there's also a kind of historical whodunit tucked in there, in which we try to solve a philosophical mystery. Why did Sartre, who was the most opinionated and judgmental man in the world at the time, and also a great hero of anti-colonial struggles, fail to develop a clear position on the Israel-Palestine conflict. We're not going to give you the answer to that question during this conversation. Our focus really is going to be on Arab existentialism itself, because the heroes of this book are the Arab existentialists. And as I was reading it, I found myself really wondering, you know, why haven't I heard about them before? Where have these great philosophers been hiding? So I guess that's also my first question for you. How did you find them, and um, how did you end up writing the story of Arab existentialism? 
Right. We have a very interesting historiographical phenomenon um, happening in Middle Eastern studies. Uh, we have very good uh, histories of the region, of specific areas in the region, and intellectual histories leading to the 1950s, that is from the 19th century into the 1950s. Then we have a break, uh, a suspicious hiatus for the 50s and 60s, and everything is picked up again after the 1967 war, which is, of course, a major watershed in the history of the region, the war between the Israelis and the Arabs. And I was wondering, um, why the gap? And what is it in the history of the post-1967 period that makes it very easy for historians to divide it to before and after? As 67 is a major defeat of something in which uh, we can describe a so-called secular Arab world. I don't really accept these definitions, but so-called secular Arab world that became Islamic and fundamentalist after that we had a universal engagement with the world. And after 67, we got uh, this localism and a whole other host of sort of divisions of before and after. So the 50s and 60s were quite an historiographical enigma for me. Um, and I decided to read broadly about uh, the 50s and 60s. That it just go without, you know, just sit two, three years and read. Um, and it's then that I found um, that existentialism is very, very prevalent and the relationship with Sartre is substantial. So I can use this as a platform, not as the most important thing that happened during this period, but as a platform that can allow us to rethink the 50s and 60s, which is an era of decolonization, which opens up basically the Middle East to to the era of decolonization, the global south, the global 60s. So we're no longer putting the Middle East in some ghetto. We can think about it in tandem with other developments, and that actually changes, changes the story we know about the 50s and 60s. Right. So, so what kind of things do we get to see when we take the Middle East out of the ghetto and, and reconstruct this multi-directional dialogue with Europe? Yes, but, but also with decolonization movements in Africa and Asia and around the world. You know, what, what new kind of understanding can we gain from that? Yeah, so um, the way in which uh, uh, the Middle East was, you know, involved in, in, in global developments, uh, not only those related to France, but those delayed, uh, related to struggles of liberation in, in Africa and Asia, was always known. What we did not know is the extent of the connections and, and how, how intense are these connections and meaningful they were. Now, I did not set to write a book about global intellectual history. I did not sit and say, okay, now to, you know, I'm going to write a book about global intellectual history. I'm going to show this and this and that. <clears throat> the way it worked was the other way around. I started digging in the backyard of the Middle East, where we always uh, dig as Middle East historians. And the stories took me to other places. Um, specifically, at the beginning, it took me to France when I... Uh, uh, followed a group of uh, young intellectuals. It's a it's a it's a generational story. It's a generations of Arab intellectuals who were born in the 1920s and hoped to decolonize their societies. And uh, it's there where they found something which was very amorphous, very difficult to define. Existentialism is notoriously difficult to you know to define and 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 pin down. And uh, basically, they uh, uh, took bits and parts of it, uh, um, and reinvented the new tradition, which uh, one of their philosophers, Abdelrahman Badawi, 
coined in, in, in called Arab existentialism. So this is how I got to this connection. And I want to say this is not a passive history of reception studies. That is, um, Arabs took some idea that uh, Europeans uh, invented and put it to work, so to speak. Uh, there is a two-way relationship here. They serve as a model for uh, Europeans on the left for a variety of reasons. And uh, there is a sense that uh, at least those who are engaged in this project are engaged in a, in a universal effort, in a global effort for, of universal emancipation, of universal citizenship. And that's what is distinctive about that for me. So, um, so let's say I'm, a, I'm an ideological tourist. I'm a, a man of the left and I'm coming from Europe, uh, let's say from France, and I'm heading to the Middle East to find some new model for revolutionary activity. You know, what is it that's going to really grab me when I get there? What's, what's going to excite me? What kinds of existentialist philosophy might I find in a bookstore somewhere that I'd want to pick up and throw in my knapsack and bring back to all my Galois-smoking Sartrean friends back in Paris? So if you're a tourist traveling to, ideological tourist traveling to the Middle East, I'm not sure that existentialism is that which is going to necessarily uh, impress you. Uh, even though I wrote a book about that, but mostly you would look at mostly you would look at ways in which the working class is organized. You would look at legislation. How, for example, they made sure that uh, women would get out of the house to work, that they would get training, that they would have maternity leave, that they would have uh, a very progressive, especially in Egypt, very progressive legislation, even by today's uh, standards. Uh, you would uh, look at agrarian reform, they were impressed by it, the way in which land was taken from landowners and was given to uh, to peasants, the way in which uh, peasant communities were reorganized uh, to create better hygiene conditions and a better, uh, um, better infrastructure and better education opportunities. Um, and you would look at the ways in which the Arab world is trying to participate in third world liberation struggles in Africa. That were the things that impressed you. But uh, um, the presence of existentialism, in case you read Arabic, uh, would, not, would not be lost uh, on you. What it did create, maybe we will transition to the usages of existentialism, at least in the 60s, it, create, it, it assisted in creating a common language. But if you come from France, as Sartre, Beauvoir, and Lanzmann, and Antraj, and others came to the Middle East, if you come to the Middle East, um, they would not be talking in two different languages, something which did happen in the 40s and 50s. They would actually be able to communicate uh, um, under one conceptual language of the global South and the need for emancipation and the need for revolution and the need for socialism. And uh, existentialism assisted in transitioning the Middle East from a very kind of limited conversation about national liberation and anti-colonial nationalism to something which is much broader um, and connected also to race, to otherness, um, to struggles of equality and social justice. Right. So I think what I hear you saying is that existentialism was sort of a unifying discourse in that it both brought together people from lots of different places, but also ideas and, and uh, themes that were present in lots of other discussions at the time. So maybe now would be the moment to sort of dive in and talk about the 
four or five different strands of existentialism that you discuss in detail in your book. Right. So we are, uh, when we're looking at the various uh, usages of existentialism at the various recreation of kind of micro-traditions, we can talk about four or five different clusters uh, that don't necessarily um, work harmoniously as one system of thought, but more, more like an open code culture in which you can come and change and add and, uh, and operate in the world. The first one is a purely philosophical strand. Uh, that was by definition limited uh, because it was quite esoteric. It started with the application of uh, um, uh, Heidegger, with the uh, translation of Heidegger, uh, and with the engagement of categories that relate to authenticity um, and to the idea of being as a whole, and led to to philosophical experimentation that was supposed to create a new philosophy for decolonization that would transition Arab culture and Arab philosophy uh, from its submission to European epistemology to uh, basically a freestanding status in which it is uh, uh, organic to the uh, Arab experience. That is, it does not have <coughs> a schism between uh, tradition and uh, modernity, uh, but allows for a, a reconciliation of the two in the form of Sufism, for example. So that was one trend. Um, the second trend was already very, very political. And it was about taking Sartre's notion of commitment, translating it as iltizam which in Arabic means uh, a commitment, and that is the demand that the object of any form of intellectual work would be concrete political and social change. That is, you don't write a poem for the sake of uh, 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 the poetic emotional value of it, of being simply moving and beautiful. You write a poem that would invoke the struggle of the working class or the peasants or other issues in society and uh, point out the justness of this cause and also the way to change it. Um, that was probably the most uh, uh, prolific platform and the most uh, contagious, in a way, idea that spread all over uh, Arab societies very, very quickly. It started in, in Cairo, moved to Beirut, and then was dominant feature of Arab thought and politics from bottom to the top all the way to the late 60s when it was replaced with the Palestinian notions of resistance, Mukawama. Um, another usage of, the, of existentialism um, was, was related to uh, third worldism. That is, through a conversation about otherness and authentic being and what does it mean to live a life that is true to your own uh, past, which is a major question in colonial, in society coming, societies that are emerging out of colonial uh, rule. Through this, uh, a whole uh, cluster of thought that is called existential humanism that included not only Sartre, but included Fanon and Memi and others, and Leopold and work on uh, racism, on uh, neocolonialism, notions of uh, settler colonialism, 
struggles for race, for social justice, all of them begin to uh, be conceived under the same umbrella. And uh, here, uh, the issue is not simply intellectual, but also political example. Because this body of work was applied politically. It was applied to Algeria, as it applied to Vietnam, and to struggles in Rhodesia and Congo, and also, of course, became applicable to, uh, to Palestine. The other tradition of existentialism is not everything worked against uh, um, uh, neocolonialism and imperial rule. Existentialism was also used as a tool for opposition against uh, political authoritarianism inside the Middle East. It so happens that societies that go under uh, through decolonization in the 50s and 60s uh, did not notice that uh, nationalism is confused with state power. And while everybody is nationalist, the state becomes stronger, a very, short, a very small uh, circle of people control it, mostly coming from the previous liberation movement or from the army. And uh, they suppress uh, you know, the liberal freedoms that were still uh, a legacy of... Uh, of the 30s and 40s in the Middle East, and um, a, a whole group of writers began to use uh, themes of existentialism as a philosophy of freedom to point out what the state is doing, to point out the reduction in liberal freedoms, and also Palestinian refugees used it to point out their own uh, uh, condition of being a refugee, of being out of state, of being nowhere and being everywhere at the same time. Feminist writers used it in order to expose the works of patriarchy. So it got all sorts of usages. Uh, in Baghdad, for example, it was a complete scene of non-engagement with the state, non-engagement with nationalism, and being basically a vagabond intellectual who, um, uh, create, who live a, a life that is very, very similar to what they thought is left bank uh, intellectuals in Paris were doing. Alcohol, sex, smoking, and uh, uh, behavior of that, of that type. So these are the kind of manifestations and usages of it, some of them. That's terrific. Now, we're obviously not going to be able to get into all the fascinating specific examples of these different streams. And if listeners are interested in that, they'll, they'll have to buy the book. But um, let's let's focus in here on, on some of the Palestinian usages of existentialism. As, as you were talking about the experience of existential homelessness, a, a quote from your book came to mind. It's from a, a young Palestinian author whose name was Jabra, Ibrahim Jabra. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he said, he wrote, We lost Palestine because we had confronted a ruthless modern force with an outmoded tradition. Everything had to change, and change had to begin at the base, with a change of vision, a new way of looking at the things, a new way of saying things, a new way of approaching and portraying man and the world. So maybe we could use that quote as a, as a jumping off point to ask, how did existentialism give Palestinians a new way of looking at things, a, a new way of saying things? What did, how did it help them approach the world in a new way? Right. It's a very good question because what you hear uh, in these quotes um, is a quest, a yearning for a new ontological position, a new ontology, 
of the post-colonial generation, of those who are supposed to decolonize their society, understanding that decolonization is not, as the previous generation thought, something you do against the colonizers, so an outward move, but it's an internal move of purging, of recreation, recreation and reinventing a new form of being, or as they called it, a new Arab man. Uh, Palestinians were not the only one uh, doing that. Uh, a lot of Ba'athi intellectuals in Syria were doing that, and I tell their stories as well. But what Palestinians were very sensitive to doing, um, because they had no society that uh, is living in one place under one national circumstances, they are intimate outsiders of uh, all other societies in the Middle East. And as such, they have a view from nowhere. Um, and it's interesting that um, the theorization of the next stage of, um, of what does it mean to be free uh, mostly manifested eventually in Palestinian history after 1967, started by people like Fayez Sayer, who was uh, um, a refugee from Tiberias in the north of Palestine, uh, uh, present-day Israel, and um, an existentialist philosopher. And he, like Hisham Sharabi, another philosopher, Palestinian philosopher, they were, they were trained as, uh, as existentialist philosophers on the PhD level in the U.S., both of them, and both of them wrote quite clearly and quite uh, uh, um, uh, powerfully um, about the kinds of change that is needed in Palestinian society by Arab society as a whole. Faisal, for example, did not write about abstractions because for them, things had to be concrete. The existential framework opened them to all sorts of questions, as I mentioned, this race, uh, understanding uh, uh, you know, what is called today intersectionality, right? What is happening uh, uh, with the, uh, the black power movement in the U.S., with you know, post-slavery life in the U.S., with inner life uh, cities in the U.S., they understood that, and uh, they came up with the notion of uh, settler colonialism, which was uh, something that developed in, in France, uh, but was really theorized and put to work uh, by Faisal in a book that became a, an international book bestseller, and that is something that he applied to Palestine, uh, which which really, if you look at the philosophical kind of background that brought him to that, um, his upbringing as an existential philosopher and the way in which uh, he understood the human condition um, brought him to, to theorize Palestinian destitutes uh, in the context of settler colonialism and demanding from Sartre uh, action. And that was a novelty. Take it to the global level by calling on the first global intellectual to intervene. And so what does it mean to describe the situation in Palestine in terms of settler colonialism? How, how is this an innovation that was linked to his existentialist training? The real innovation here is that this is derived from the notion of otherness. And here it's actually intellectually very fascinating because one of the ways in which you know the other in Western philosophy becomes uh, a major philosophical issue after World War II. It's not in, uh, so much an issue before, but it is the, um, the philosophical problem of the post-war era and continues all the way to, to our present day, right? Um, 
Arab intellectuals uh, know that Sartre engaged with this question. He engaged with this question in a text that is a haunting text because it's a text about Jewish uh, experience of anti-Semitism. Sartre publishes Anti-Semite and Jew, Reflexion sur la question juive. In this book, he theorizes uh, otherness. He shows what does it mean to be for the Jew and other of the anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, and he shows that this is a relational, uh, this is a relation. That is, the, the otherness of the Jew is constituted um, as part of a process. This process of uh, um, how the other is constituted was very effective not only for uh, uh, West African intellectuals who said, oh, of course, this is how we became, you know, the black other. This is how we became colonized. Um, Fanon read this and all read this in the Journal of Présence Africaine, they make a big deal of it. All of this is well known. Simone de Beauvoir is taking the same notion to apply to the process by which the woman becomes a woman, right? She's not, she's not born a woman. She becomes a woman. All of this, in that context, was predicated on Sartre's text about anti-Semitism. These texts have been translated to Arabic only last year. It hasn't been translated at all at the time, but they read it, and they negotiated it, and they were not sure how to approach it. What they take out of it is the notion of otherness. This otherness is then conjoined with the idea of race, and with the idea that Zionism have others, and the others of Zionism Zionisms are Palestinians, and the issue is racial. That is, Zionism is a racist environment, that's the way the phrase, it's a racist movement, that's the way it was framed, that others, Palestinians as racial others, and that opens, that connects the Palestinian cause intellectually to, uh, um, to all the conversation that happened in the 60s about racism and colonialism and racism and imperialism connects them directly to uh, the black uh, American experience. Um, of course, Algeria, of course, Rhodesia, Congo, all the struggles of, 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 of uh, liberation in Africa and other places. So race becomes constitutive of the Palestinian cause with relation to Zionism. And then they coin something, the Faisal does something very simple. He basically says Zionism is racism. He got to it through South. And um, in the 60s, it seemed, okay, it might not be a big deal. You know, it's uh, what happens in colonialism and settler colonialism is a racial reality that makes one group see the other as racially unfair and hence uh, uh, they have uh, um, almost a moral justification to remove them from their land as, as kind of ontologically unequal. But uh, while in the 60s it does not seem to be a big case, in the 70s, all of a sudden, this passes as a UN resolution, that Zionism is racism. So eventually it becomes a major, a major issue, and one of the most painful arguments against Zionism, and something that Zionists really struggled with. And, and so was the idea behind getting Sartre to come to Palestine to get him to say, you know, Zionism is racism according to my, even my own theories of otherness? Was that the motivation behind this, this trip that sort of frames your work? Actually not, surprisingly. I thought that, you know, Palestine is at the forefront of this. But the people who bring Sartre eventually to the region are, are Egyptians. And it's the Egyptian state and, and Egyptian students in Paris. And really what they want, 
the thing that is really really preoccupies them is recognition for their own revolutionary position. How come Sartre wrote a book about Castro? How come he's very much impressed with what is happening in China, but he overlooks the Egyptian revolutionary project? How come Egyptian socialism, Arab socialism, as it was called, is not recognized globally yet as a, uh, as a model to be followed? This is The Egyptians really want recognition for that, and you can see it not only because of the archival record and so on, you can actually see the way they take Sartre, Beauvoir, and Lanzmann around Egypt is to showcase this revolutionary project. But of course, these people also cared, especially Lutfi Khuli and his wife, Lilian, they deeply cared about what is happening in Palestine. And uh, they, they, uh, uh, they insist that he would visit the Gaza Strip as well. Um, now, what they want from him, and what they, and the Arabs are not one front here. Jordanians and Syrians and Palestinians themselves are pushing against the Egyptians. They feel that, Palest- that Egyptians are not pulling Palestine at the front. So, Billy Dries believes that from, from Beirut, a very influential editor of, of El Adab, feels that the, that the Egyptians are cutting corners on the Palestinian issue. Uh, by the way, it's a chronic uh, Palestinian complaint. It's not. It's not something that is new. You can you can uh, uh, trace it all the way to present day politics. And what they want from Sartre is simply to see that everything that he said about Algeria and Rhodesia is also true in Palestine. Every uh, uh, analysis, any analysis of the way the colonizer works in Algeria, not only the economic system, the racial system, is actually happening in Palestine. That when he writes about race and about otherness and about alienation, this has happened to Palestinians. That is that Zionists have others and the others are uh, Palestinians. So... If the solution in Algeria is dismantling the states of uh, colonialism and the privileges of the PNR, why is it not the solution in Palestine? This, philosophically, is a very, very difficult question to answer for Sartre, and he does not have an answer to it. Mm. Right, right. Now, um, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the end of the book by telling our listeners what Sartre's non-answer actually consists of. Um, so, so instead, maybe let's go back for a moment. Um, you, you mentioned that there was a shift away from an existentialist understanding of commitment towards a more specifically Palestinian notion of resistance. And um, I wonder if you maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. Is that something that happens post-67? Uh, what's the difference between the notion of commitment spreading through the Arab world in the 50s and 60s and what emerges immediately afterward? So from the get-go, iltizam, commitment, was a contested concept. When you do a conceptual history of iltizam, as I do in the book, you find out that, yes, one tradition was the one I described in which uh, the nationalists, those who wanted uh, a big pan-Arab state and were uh, working on behalf of the Egyptian, the expanding Egyptian state, or trans-regional Egyptian state of pan-Arabism, they had one notion of commitment. But then the communists and the Marxists came with a competing notion that was also called Intizam, but was actually predicated on the aesthetic and intellectual procedures of uh, socialist realism. 
and of the example of of uh, Soviet communism. And um, there was a party behind it, not a state. Palestinians um, beginning to see that this notion of commitment, and not only them, is being appropriated by the state uh, and by the various states, in which the state now is saying we are committed to a cause. Our cause is revolution. It's quite abstract. It's not only our causes to liberate Palestine. They say our cause is revolution. We're going to change everything. We're going to create a new Arab men and women. We're going to uh, change the structure of society. And for that, you have to be committed, but committed to us, right? Mm-hmm. And when they look at it, they say, hey, um, this gives a lot of power to the hands of the state. It's a tool of ideological... Uh, uh, not coercion, but it's a tool of cohesion. It's a tool of bringing people together in an uncritical way. And the Palestinians are very critical because they can see things from various perspectives at any given time, and they're not aligned with any political system. they under five or more different political systems. So they begin to understand that this form of intizam is actually submission to state power, and it's quite castrating. What it tells you is that you have to follow the directions of the state and then Palestine would be liberated. Well, people could have believed in it until 1967. But in 1967, in the course of five, six days, this entire uh, cause disappears, collapses into thin air. Who else is going to liberate Palestine now? Iltizam cannot do that. Iltizam bankrupt. It was a tool for coercion. It was a tool to, uh, that was used on behalf of the Ba'athis to torture opponents. On behalf of Iltizam, 10,000 uh, 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 activists and intellectuals of the, of the Communist Party in Iraq are slaughtered in 1963. These are the things that happened on behalf of Iltizam, plus the defeated war. So they develop a different notion of commitment, which is called Mukawama. It has a different name. It's basically resistance, and uh, it's more in tandem with uh, Che Guevara's example than with anything uh, that preceded it in the Middle East. And it is about guerrilla warfare, and it's about uh, uh, creating uh, urban warfare uh, and taking the fight also to Europe, not only in the Middle East, not only in Palestine, but wherever there is a Zionist uh, 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 embassy or uh, uh, you know an airline or anything that represents the state of Israel is a legitimate target also within Europe. So this is what happened with the notion of uh, Mukama in the hands of Palestinians, and it's uh, it's coming out of the culture of this general culture of Islam, but also departs from it in considerable ways. Okay, we're um, we're getting close to the end here, and uh, I'm going to let you go in a second, but I, I just wanted to ask you two last questions. Uh, the first is whether you think this trajectory of elitism or, or existentialist commitment more broadly parallels developments in Europe or maybe in the Americas where similar ideas took hold, or, or is it really a significant departure from other ways of thinking about engagement? And secondly, I guess, uh, what's next, you know? What's the next thing that you want to be focusing on? Uh, and, and what's the next thing that you think intellectual historians ought to focus on once they uh, finish reading your book? Right. So with regard to the first question, the tradition of Islam in the Middle East and its specificity, the specificity of 
of uh, commitment, it is unlike anything that happens in, in, in uh, other societies. It is really one of these examples in which global intellectual history can show us something which is uh, uh, on the local level very complex, but also on the global international level complex. And if you disconnect this connection, if you don't view it as, a, as an intellectual ecosystem, you actually cannot understand how it works. And that's the beauty of global intellectual history. Now, um, one of the things that happened with commitment in the Middle East, that it's not only against the colonizer, against uh, outer forces, um, but it also was a tool in which the young generation made space for itself within the literary intellectual field against the old generation of intellectuals. They told them, you're not committed, uh, you're a reactionary, therefore, and uh, they shamed them and chased them out of their positions. Their, their journals uh, uh, went out of print and new journals came in. So there's a, a change of the intellectual guard. This is a tool for internal decolonization. So it's when we combine, uh, 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 when we, it's only when we are able to understand uh, the complexity of the idea that is being, in which they are being exposed in Europe in the way in which it, they put it in the Middle East in an entirely different way, but also in conversation, that these usages uh, and uh, the functioning of decolonization as a global phenomena becomes clear. Now, with relation to where to take the project next, you know, what, what, what do we take from it? This is, of course, very complex because it's, uh, it puts us in a normative space. That is, what kind of histories ought to be written? That's a question you, you ask someone who is like 80 years old, yeah? <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, to tell, to tell people what kind of histories to be, you know, we need and so on is, is not something uh, uh, that, um, you know, I, I'd like to do or it doesn't actually have any, any meaning. It, it, uh, if you remember, in the 1960s, they had histories that they had history classes that started with uh, title "Problem in Social History," you no know, problems in social history, things like this. And social historians were asked to identify a problem, not to come with a theory, but to identify a problem. I think that if we read the intellectual record and identify concerns, identify problems of the people on the ground, and trace them. Uh, we uh, uh, we are going to do very good service for the uh, er, for understanding the Arab human uh, condition in the 20th century and its context. And I think that's a worthwhile thing to do, not only scholarly uh, but also politically. It's very important to humanize, to to to, to present this full-fledged history that is completely absent from any representation of Arabs uh, today, or, you know, one is mentioned, any country in the Middle East, and the next, the next sentence is, is some pejorative something. And we do not understand how we got to the Middle East that we have today. Um, we, in order to understand this Middle East we have today, we really need to begin to humanize even, you know, issues that relate to defeat, uh, and collapses of projects, and, and I think this is uh, one of the benefits of, of doing this kind of work. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much, Yoav. Yoav Di Capua. The book is called No Exit, Arab Existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Decolonization. 
go and get it. It's out on New Chicago Press now. And we're going to close things out here with a bit from the second movement of the Little Modernsky Suite. So long. Yeah, yeah, yeah.